Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. We're diving into the biggest environmental stories of the past year. Not even a week into 2020, and already this is a year no Australian will forget. That's coming up next. First up today is the state of Cook County. Next week, the county's board of commissioners will hold its first regular meeting of the year. But it's been nearly two months since the board voted to approve its 2020 budget. Now, that budget includes $2.8 billion for the county's health and hospital system, $1.3 billion for public safety, but residents won't pay any new taxes or fees under the $6.2 billion spending plan. One way the county was able to save over $500 million was by eliminating many positions that had been vacant for a while. So I asked Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle if she was concerned about staffing issues. Well, you know, I think we're going to be faced with some challenges as a result of the, the, the position eliminations, but we're going to have to figure out how we can meet those challenges, address those challenges. We want to try to run our government as efficiently and effectively as we can, and uh, that was the best way to do it under this environment. Well, the county is expected to provide nearly $600 million in medical care this year without getting reimbursed, and that's known as uncompensated care. And you've said this is what worries you most about the county's 2020 budget. What is your thinking right now about how you can address that? Well, this is a two-part challenge. First of all, the, the total number is $600 million. But I think what our listeners need to know is that we've seen a $100 million increase just in the last two years. And that uncompensated care is a combination of charity care, people we know have no ability to pay, and people who are so-called self-payers and, and turn into bad debt. That is, the, the obligation to pay is on them. They can't or won't make the payments, and as a result, it's bad debt. But that's a $100 million increase in just the last two years, and we have to we have to figure out how to address that challenge, and it, it, it will be a challenge over the next several years. Well, the Cook County Board ousted Cook County Health CEO Dr. Jay Shannon back in November. Uh, that's going to cost taxpayers money as they pay out that severance, but what are you looking for in a candidate to replace him? Well, first of all, the obligation to replace him is of the Health and Hospital uh, System Board, And my understanding is that they have or will shortly engage a national search firm to help them find a replacement. And we hope that in the first part of 2020, we'll have a new CEO on hand. Uh, And that CEO will then continue to try to make the improvements in quality and efficiency uh, that Dr. Shannon began, as well as addressing this uncompensated care uh, challenge. Well, one of the the issues that came up during this conversation about uncompensated care was the, the fact that Cook County was taking on the lion's share of responsibility for people who needed care but couldn't afford to pay. And one of the things that came up was, well, other hospitals in the area should be taking on more of that responsibility. Have there been any more conversations or any more interaction with other hospitals in the area about picking up some of that care? Well, I think it's important uh, for our listeners to understand that we have two hospitals, Stroger and Provident, and we provide in our two hospitals half of the charity care that's delivered in the county. And there are 68 hospitals in the county. So I mean, it's an understatement to say that we're, <laughs> we're shouldering our, more than our fair share of the burden here. And there will be conversations with the other 66 hospitals about uh, increasing their commitments uh, to charity care. The not-for-profit hospitals get tax property tax reductions ostensibly because they're delivering charity care. And um, as you can see from the statistics that I just described, 
that provision is pretty modest for many of them. You inherited a $487 million budget deficit when you took office in, in 2010. That's been reduced to about $18.7 million in 2020. At the same time, the county faces a projected budget gap of $109 million in 2021. Uh, that number steadily rises to a projected $307 million by 2024. What are your plans to tackle that? Well, Every year when you close a gap, you make hopefully structural changes and not one-time fixes, and those impact your uh, deficit in the future. So if you continue to, uh, as we have done, eliminate positions rather than do things that only have a one-time impact, the deficit that you face in succeeding years will be smaller. You know, we'll address the challenges that we faced uh, in 2020 and our budget work, just as we did in the previous 10 years. Will structural changes go far enough to addressing these budget gaps or is raising taxes on on the table. I'm not going to make any commitments going forward, but let me just say that our first our first cut always is let's figure out how to make government more effective. Well, several members of the county party are facing federal scrutiny. So far, Alderman Ed Burke, former state representative Luisa Arroyo, state senator Tom Cullerton, they're all facing federal charges. There's been a lot of talk about reform. And I'm curious what you think needs to happen at the state, county, and city level to reform government and help prevent political corruption? Well, Jen, you know, I'm a history teacher, (laughs) so forgive me, but I think context is always critical. And the context here is in Cook County alone, in Cook County alone, we have more than 3,900 elected officials, almost 4,000, okay? And you've just named a handful of people, and we have 3,900, 3,900 Uh, elected officials, people on our library boards, our park district boards, people who serve in city councils or trustees for their village, people who serve in the state legislature, people who are mayors, people who are county commissioners. And so this is a very modest number of people who are under investigation for bad acts. But they're leaders leaders in the state and at the city level. So isn't that significant? I'm not saying it's insignificant. I'm trying to provide a context. And the context is a total number of elected officials that's almost 4,000, almost 4,000. And unfortunately, what the media focuses on is the half a dozen people who are under investigation. And by the way, my understanding is nobody's been convicted. Am I wrong about this? No, no one's been convicted. And and in in this country, you are innocent until proven guilty. So we have some people who are under investigation, some people who have been charged, and 3,900 people who are elected officials. That's the context. But but we've heard calls from elected officials, including Governor Pritzker, saying there need to be reforms around issues like lobbying. Why? Well, here's, here's, here's my position. I, I got elected to the city council in 1991. So I've been in public life for almost 30 years. And I always said we should pay our elected officials well in a democracy and expect them to work for us full time. I think that's the most important um, change we could make in Illinois uh, to make our government uh, more transparent and um, reduce the likelihood of corruption. I don't, look, I don't believe that people should hold public office and be lobbying. I don't think, (laughs) I think people who hold public office should be elected officials and serve full time. That's what I've done since 1991. I don't, look, if you're asking me whether or not elected officials should be able to lobby my, my view is no, they shouldn't. But to your mind, the bigger issue is whether or not we are paying people well enough to prevent that kind of conflict. No, we should, we should, we should pay them well and prohibit <laughs> any other employment. That's my view. And that's the only place of reform you think that's necessary? <laughs> no. I think if you start there, 
a lot of the challenges that we've seen in our politics in Illinois uh, will be dramatically reduced. Let's talk about your priorities for 2020. What are two or three things you're planning to tackle this year? About half our budget is health care. Another 30, 35 percent is, is criminal justice, public safety. And our jail population has gone from ten or 11,000 when I came in the door down now to less than 6,000, mainly because people accused of low-level nonviolent crimes no longer spend the time between their arrest and the disposition of their case in jail. And I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing for them uh, because there is the presumption of innocence. They haven't been, they haven't been convicted of a crime. Um, and reducing pretrial detention also reduces costs to taxpayers. So I think it's a good thing for the individuals who are accused but not convicted. That's a good thing for the taxpayers. Uh, but we have we have more work to do in reducing the jail population. Our goal is to get the jail population below uh, 3,500. On the economic development side, uh, we hope to to sign an agreement with Metra on our fair transit model. It'll be a three year uh, plan to reduce fares. On the Metro Electric and Rhode Island uh, lines, which serve the south suburbs and the south side of Chicago, and increased train service. So increasing the number of trains and reducing the fares. We noted with concern that the south side of Chicago and the south suburbs were not as well served by public transit as other parts of the county. And so we focused our, our fare transit model in that area. Um, we're also working in the south suburbs on economic development with a Southland Development Authority, which had its first meeting in December, and will hopefully enable us to do comprehensive planning and pursue um, retention and attraction strategies to, to build the economy in the South Suburbs. Just before we wrap, the Cook County Board will hold its first regular meeting next week on Thursday. Can you give us any insight into what's on that agenda? Uh, well, we'll be looking at some um, modifications in our enabling ordinance for the health and hospital system. Um, I think that's the first thing on the agenda. That'll be sent to committee. But, you know, we continue to work in the areas that I just described. Public health, particularly around making our our hospital system uh, um, more efficient and effective as we improve quality of care, reducing investments in the jail in our our public safety arena, and uh, trying to focus on economic development in those parts of the county that are most challenged. Before we wrap, as you look to 2020, I'm just curious, what do you think are the biggest challenges ahead for Cook County, not just this year, but going forward? And the budget, of course, people will automatically go to that, but other challenges that you see? President Trump, in his effort to discredit former President Obama, uh, has been chipping away at the Affordable Care Act, both by investing less in marketing the options available to to our the residents of our country through the Affordable Care Act, and reducing investment in navigators to help people enroll and re-enroll in, in Medicaid expansion, for example. And if he is successful, if he gets reelected and has a Republican House, right now he's stopped by the Democratic House, he will do everything he can to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And the Republicans have no plan that they've divulged. (laughs) Maybe there's some secret plan somewhere, but no plan that they've divulged for replacing the Affordable Care Act, which has provided health insurance for the first time for hundreds of millions of Americans. Um, We have not yet gotten to this point in the country where we um, believe that health care should be provided for everyone, which is what I believe. Um, But I think an outstanding challenge for us is the national political scene and changes in House membership in particular that might impact the survival of the Affordable Care Act. Um, There is a national trend which is in our favor, and that is that more people are focusing on the criminal justice system and the the terrific 
racial inequities in that system and the way in which we as a nation treat our fellow citizens. You may know this, but we have 5% of the world's population in this country and 25% of the people in prison. And I always say, you know, unless you believe that Americans are more likely to be criminals than people elsewhere in the world, we're doing something terribly wrong. And disproportionately, the people in our jails and prisons are black and brown. It's disgraceful. That's Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. President Preckwinkle, thanks for speaking with us. Glad to be here. For our planet's environment, 2019 brought us historic moments for good and for ill. With me to reflect on what she sees as the biggest environmental stories from last year is Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. She's vice president at Slipstream. That's a clean energy innovation nonprofit. She also served as chief sustainability officer for the city of Chicago. She joins us on occasion to be your guide through the world of sustainability within our neighborhoods, our city, and our planet. Karen, welcome back to Reset and Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. So One terrible event made your list, and it's still having an impact, and that's, of course, the Australian fires. Absolutely. It's a devastating story, and it's a story that started in 2019, and we're still living today through it in 2020. And Australia does have a fire season. Bushfires are not uncommon, but the intensity, the strength, and the devastation is largely unprecedented. And so it's impacting people, it's impacting wildlife, and it's impacting air quality all all around the world. Well, it's stunning when you hear people talk about the fact that these fires are so large, they create their own weather systems. And I, that was something new to me. It is amazing when you look at the impact. And if you look at the aerial shots and you can see from space the smoke coming off of parts of Australia, it just speaks to the extraordinary impact that human settlements are having, but that also the changes in temperature are having. Mm -hmm. Australia broke their national temperature records twice in December. So we're talking about extreme heat. And uh, they also have not had the precipitation, the wetness, the rain that they would expect. So the broader weather patterns are changing. And then you have huge swirls of temperature that create these micro challenges. Let's listen to some of the sounds from this tragedy. Not even a week into 2020, And already, this is a year no Australian will forget. To put it into perspective, there are 330 million people living in the U.S. Australia's wildfires have killed an estimated 480 million animals. They're using every asset they've got, planes, helicopters, fire engines. Heading up the driveway towards his home through the burnt-out bush, Bruce Honeyman knew what was waiting for him. Bizarre. The house is... it's all gone. Kathy Bleacher has come back for the first time to what's left of her house. It's hard because it's hard, you know. I mean, it is just a house at the end of the day, but when you see it like this, you know, it's where you lived. They call Australia the lucky country. Right now, it feels cursed. This has sparked a conversation in Australia about the environment, about climate change. Talk a little bit about that. Well, Australia is largely viewed as one of the countries that's quite vulnerable to changes in climate. And so this is likely a story that unfortunately we will continue to think about, but it speaks to the much broader trends that face Australia and then broadly other places in the world as we look at those changes in climate. Well, let's turn to a more hopeful topic. One favorite from your 2019 list gives a nod to a group that refuses to be ignored. Adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. 
We should be terrified. We should be angry that we have to skip school to fight for our lives. We should be angry that people have to take off work to demand to have a life that their kids can live in. This is absurd that we have to be here. I should be at school taking a math quiz. I should be at school learning about history. I shouldn't have to demand to, for there to be a history left for us. We heard there from Time Magazine's 2019 Person of the Year, Greta Thunberg. Also there, a Chicago area student, and there are two of the millions of young people around the world demanding that leaders act with urgency on climate change. Karen, I mean, these young people are out there and they're taking it seriously. It's incredible. It's one of the big stories of 2019. And it's this engagement, not just of youth, but of the power of youth and of the incredible numbers, but also the clarity of purpose. And it's been extraordinary to watch because at the beginning of the year, there actually were polls that said, oh, more Americans now care about climate change than before. And and those poll numbers have been going in a direction that suggests more people pay attention. But this, at the end of the year, is unprecedented. And so for her to be named the, the person of the year... It was an interesting parallel because now the dictionary has named climate strike the word of the year for 2019. Well, we know it's hard enough sometimes to get good air conditioning here in the summer. And of course, that's an issue when we talk about climate change. But one country's solution took it to another level. Tell us about this story. Yeah, this was an extraordinary example. Qatar in the Middle East has started air conditioning outdoor spaces. And you just have to pause for a moment to think about that. It speaks to many, many things. And so that's what's so important about these stories as we look at them as a group. One is that the world's temperatures are hot and they're rising. And so there are questions about some places in the world. And as the climate continues to change and those temperatures rise, some places will be very, very challenging. So we have to recognize that. But then there are questions, well, why? And it's the the links to climate change and the growing fossil fuels. You can't air condition your way out of that. If we look at global population trends, many people live in areas that are hot. They're going to be hotter. Globally, we are going to have to think about air conditioning. But air conditioning the outdoors is not the long-term solution. We've got to find ways to make it equitable as we go because it's also very expensive. There are many, many people who can't afford air conditioning. And so this was just a very strong example of multiple trends coming together, but the solution not being in there. Well, you know, when we talk about sustainability and we talk about climate change, it's such a big issue. And I hear from people so often, well, what am I supposed to do? And you actually have a simple solution on your list. Absolutely. And uh, one of the ones that impacts daily life is the food you eat. And there have been great, great updates on essentially low carbon diets. Now, I realize it's also the start of the year. So people are thinking about New Year's resolutions and being healthy. And the great overlap is most of the direction on what a quote, quote unquote low carbon diet would be leads toward more plant based foods, which happens to align nicely with healthy eating. And so there's been tremendous looks there, lots of interesting recipes, ways to think about it being practical. But there are things day to day that impact daily life, that impact climate, and that can be folded in nicely. Well, President Trump picked a lot of fights last year with the state of California over issues like carbon emission standards for cars. And when he was commenting on impeachment investigations, the president managed to take a shot at California officials in real time. And this was happening as forest fires engulfed the state. You got fires eating away at California every year. Because management is so bad, the governor doesn't know he's like a child. He doesn't know what he's doing. Every year, it's always California. It's rarely somebody else or someplace else. But Nancy Pelosi ought to go back to a district and take care of it. Now, you chose one policy example of the Trump administration's antagonism to California that some leaders there called illegal. What is this about? 
The administration is essentially blocking energy efficiency in light bulbs. And so it's a, it's a very specific thing. And when you think about broad politics, it's emblematic of the challenges this administration has with addressing climate. What's also interesting about it is energy efficiency is an area where a lot of solutions happen. You save money while you reduce energy. And to go after the light bulb was particularly emblematic of this story because light bulbs are in all of our homes. It's a technology where the technology has really improved. Prices have come down. And it's a blocking of that new technology, which saves money, saves energy, and could be very, very widespread. So it speaks to politics, speaks to technology, and speaks to solutions that may or may not be happening at the speed that people might like. Well, speaking of state policy, New York made lots of sustainability news in 2019. But there's one move in particular that stood out to you. Yes, it was a move by New York City. And part of that is the important roles of cities as we think about the kinds of solutions that can impact daily life. And New York essentially took 14th Street, a very big cross-town street, and closed it to regular cars. It's essentially more focused on buses. So it's changing the congestion story. But what's quite interesting is there were tremendous protests beforehand. People were very upset and very concerned. But it's largely seemed to be working. It's a pilot. Buses that used to take half an hour to go across town are going there in 21 minutes. People are actually riding them more. They're on schedule. They're becoming more popular. And it has not had the congestion impacts people were worried about nearby. So it's a very interesting example of a city-based solution looking at transportation, which is one of the largest sources of emissions in any city, and finding a solution that actually seems to be working. Well, I don't want to let you go without a shout-out to Chicagoans, and you have some good news on that front. Absolutely. There was a project to look at creating pollinator gardens, essentially lots of plants and habitat for pollinators like birds and butterflies and bees. And Chicagoans in this area planted and registered over 14,000. It was part of an effort to create over a million here. That goal was reached early. Chicago played a large role in that. And it's something that can happen at multiple scales. A small pot on a balcony all the way to a large yard. Everyone can participate, and Chicagoans did. Really quickly, what will you be looking ahead to in 2020, specifically in Chicago, around issues of sustainability? When I look ahead at 2020 in Chicago, what we're looking at are what are going to be those priorities of the various government agencies? What's the city going to do in 2020 with a full year under the Lightfoot administration? And then what are our residents going to continue to do? How are we going to see increases in public transit riders Are these changes in mobility really going to change the way we work and live to transit, away from transit? And at the end of the day, where are we going to find those delicious, healthy foods? That's Karen Weigert, Reset Sustainability Contributor and Vice President at Slipstream, a clean energy innovation nonprofit. Karen joins us to be your guide into the world of sustainability in our neighborhoods, our city, and our planet. Karen, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And that's today's Reset. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow. Meanwhile, stay up to date and in touch with the show via Twitter. We're at WBEZ Reset. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.